Welcome to the worst nightmare of all. Reality. Um, um, okay, well, what we're thinking of as, as aliens are, they're, uh, they're, they're extra dimensional beings. Explore the lesser-known stories of our unknown world. Join the pursuit of the paranormal with Ash and Greg. So thank you for joining us uh, in this episode where we will be talking about the Rendlesham Forest incident. Now when I say Rendlesham Forest incident, you might be thinking of the events that took place over several nights in 1980. But that's not the Rendlesham Forest incident that we're going to be talking about today, are we, Ash? No. So, everyone, pretty much everyone knows about the Rendlesham Forest 1980 incident. So, we don't want to spend too much time talking about that. What we're going to be talking about is the past events and incidents that happened in that area. But we're going to be going back years. I'm talking 800 years of paranormal history that happened around Rendlesham Forest. So you might think, why is that relevant to something that happened 40 years ago? But as we go on, and the more we talk about what's happened in the past, it should start to make sense that why we're telling you this, as it all builds up towards those three nights in 1980. Cool. Sounds fascinating. And I know we've briefly spoke before the podcast about what this all this past information looks like and it's going to be a really interesting listen so yeah do you want to want to start us off ash yeah so i just briefly mentioned that if you don't know about the Burlington forest incident or you just need a bit of a refresher there's tons of podcasts and youtube videos and websites mm-hmm. so you want to look at that afterwards that probably make a bit more sense listen to the podcast first and then go find out what happened or refresh your memory about what happened because then it probably make a lot more sense you can do it that way but for starters, we're going to go back to the 12th century, so the 1100s, for a case that became known as the Wild Man of Orford. Okay, cool. So this was first recorded in the year 1200, but it, the actual event happened a few years before. And what happened was that some fishermen fishing near Orford Ness caught what they described as a heavy, hairy, naked and bedraggled man and he caught them in his fishing nets and this was close to Orford Ness and you might recognise the name Orford Ness Greg yeah I think that's where the lighthouse is currently or has been situated uh, which is part of the Rendlesham Forest uh, 1980 incident as well so yeah that does re- that does ring a bell to me yeah the lighthouse was there was it was believed that the lights that were seen on the 1980 event were caused by the Orfordness Lighthouse. Highly doubt that that was the case, but that was a heavily used way to debunk uh, those sightings. But the area of Orfordness has been tons of secret experiments, military buildings, military testing that's gone on over there. But going back to this 12th century uh, event, the Wild Man of Orford. So the fishermen caught this man in the nets in the water. And they actually imprisoned him at the Orford Castle. Oh. 
and they tortured him before one night he actually escaped and they never saw him again. Because he came from the water, some people actually said he was a merman, a male mermaid, and some later written accounts actually said that he had webbed hands and feet. Oh, That's when the legend of him being a merman, that he, when he escaped he just went back to the water and was never seen again. That's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. So are there any sort of artist impressions, is there any sort of drawings about what this guy is supposed to have looked like? Uh, yeah, there is. Yeah. Uh, we'll stick them on social media. Um, none of the drawings have him as having webbed feet, but it's more written accounts. Mm-hmm. said from later accounts that say he had webbed feet or hands, so how true it is, we don't know. But none of the drawings depict that he had these webbed hands. Um, but wild man or wild men have been seen quite a lot all around the UK. Yeah. Um, it's another name for Bigfoot in some cases, but I don't think this was related to Bigfoot, it's just the name of him being a wild man. Basically. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So now the next case I'm gonna mention is the Dunwich Atlantis. So the village of Dunwich is about fifteen kilometres north of Orford. So again we're not far from Mendelsham, we're in that general vicinity. And this is the coastal town of Dunwich is actually known as Britain's Atlantis. Okay, not heard of that. So basically what's happened is it was a city that used to have around 4,000 population. And over the years it just became eroded by the ocean. Just falling away into the ocean. And now it's just a small coastal village. Most of it was eroded into the seas. You can actually see images of uh, the underwater ruins that researchers have found. Uh, but it was at the end of the 1300s when there was ferocious storms battering the town and actually destroyed around 400 homes and two churches. So a lot of people were killed, that's when they lost a lot of the town into the ocean. And on stormy nights, you can still hear the frantic ringing of the church bells in the wind as the yeah, reliving the residents wow. and the, the church pastors panicking and trying to help people on that night. Oh, crazy. Yeah, I've, I've not heard of that at all. Certainly not any sort of weird bell ringing. That, that's going to be pretty freaky, I'd imagine. So now we're going to head a couple of kilometres inland from Dunwich, and this is the village of Wesselton, home of what is known as Satan's Church. That sounds <laughs> interesting and slightly ominous. There's <laughs> a lot of ominous. <laughs> so not only is it called Satan's Church, mm-hmm. because they believe that Satan himself lives there. They also have a witch that they believe resides at the church. So as well as the devil, you've got a witch. So it's quite a, a creepy church, this one. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, well, not Jesus Christ, that's the case. Well, yeah, you might need Jesus Christ in this church. <laughs> <laughs> so he, they call it Satan's Church, and because since 1340, mm. it's St. Peter's Church in Wesselton. And they've been played with bad luck. They've had the church spire's been destroyed a couple of times. First by high winds, like 300 years ago. And then the Germans bombed it during the Second World War and destroyed it again. Where the Satan bit comes in is that there's a grate next to the priest's door, a small grate in the floor. And that's where they believe that Satan lives. Like, just underneath the church, whether the church crypt or whatever, it's underneath the church there. And the witch part of it that's come into the story because there's a gravestone that's fell over from the 14th century and it's level with the ground but no grass or weeds have ever grown over the top of it so it's just always been a clear 
Euclidean gravestone. Okay. And so that's been known as the witch's gravestone in in the churchyard. So we've got the devil living under the church and we've got the witch's gravestone. <laughs> and so this is where sort of more myth, more myth comes into it. Hmm. But there's a ritual that apparently not many people are brave enough to try. But if you place a handkerchief or some other small item on top of the grating above where the devil lives, then you start on the witch's stone, run anti-clockwise around the church seven times, and when you get back after the, <laughs> after the seventh time, the handkerchief or item disappeared, and you can actually hear the chains of Satan rattling hmm. from beneath the churchyard, what? from beneath the church. And that's So that's the, uh, the, the ancient myth around this very creepy church with a number of scary residents. Oh my god, that is... <clears throat> I've never heard of that. I've never heard that story. And as I say, I, I, I do paranormal interest, but that's that's something out of a horror film right there, isn't it? Would you do it? Would you do the running around? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd give anything to go like that. <laughs> Before I started paranormal investigations, I used to be freaked out by like Ouija boards and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'd, I'd quite happily sit in a dark room in a haunted castle on my own in total darkness and start talking to anybody and anything that might be there. And it doesn't bother me, but that's a whole other level of weirdness. <laughs> Summoning the devil. Yeah, that is. That's something Quite next that, level, I think. That's next level. That is like the kind of stuff that you see in horror films, and you just go in. You know what? That's a bad idea. That's when you're shouting at them, like, "Don't go in that room! Stop! Just, just leave! Just go home! Why? Yeah, yeah you'll be dead next." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that is a proper. That's next level weirdness. I like that one. <laughs> Feel so a road this... trip coming on, Ash. Yeah, definitely. I'm <laughs> off <for> that one. <laughs> so so far, we've had witches, demons underwater cities, wild men and it won't be complete without talking about demon dogs or what is known as the Black Shuck demon dog and these are, it's what well Black Shuck's one of the names, there's Old Shuck, there's other names that people have used for years that basically describes a ghosted black dog that roams the coastline and countryside of the east of England, so the area of Suffolk and the old east Anglia and it was in Blytheburg in 1577, very stormy night, when this demon dog, this black shuck, tore the throats of two of the members of the congregation in the local church. So ran into the church on this stormy night, tore the throats of two of the congregation. And as it howled and left the church, the spire collapsed and crashed through the roof of the church. And legend has it that if you go to the church today, you can still see the claw marks in the church door. And yeah, this demon dog got into the actual church. Oh, definite road trip for us, Ash. <laughs> a lot round there. But we Can need they? to try and make sure we don't do it when it's a dark and stormy night, because it doesn't appear that things, nice things happen. Yeah, that's a bit of a running theme. Yeah. Okay, that's an, another one. Not heard of that either, so... So that wraps up some of the older stuff we're going to be talking about, just some of the strange events linked to that area around Randersham Forest. Cool, that was interesting, but how does that link to the 1980 UFO event? So the 1980 UFO incident isn't the only UFO incident to have taken place at Bentwaters. There's actually been a few UFO incidents over the years. In 
1956, on the 13th of August, around 9.30pm, radar operators at the Bentwaters base tracked a group of targets moving slowly northeast, and these all merged into one very large object before this moved off to the north. And that was followed by a single light on radar, a single object on radar that just flew across the screen from east to west. They sent a plane to investigate these objects that they tracked on radar, and he found nothing, and nothing was seen on from the ground or from anybody else, it was purely a radar tracking that sort of these objects. So that was over the base? Was that that was over the base, yeah. So when the number of objects travelled over and then they merged into one big object, yeah. which is something like three times the size of a normal plane. Okay. So this is why they sent the planes out to intercept it, but they couldn't find anything and no one on the ground saw anything. They're saying it could be possible radar malfunction or something that showing these objects. But 90 minutes later, they saw something again, and this time they saw another target approaching the base. And this was travelling at an estimated 2,000 to 4,000 miles per hour towards the base. Well, And they directly travelled above the base because it disappeared from radar very briefly, and then appeared again just further past. So the way it disappeared, is that where it's gone over the top? Yeah, there's a, yep. like a, there's blind, a spot blind spot from the radar. Yep. Yeah, that's okay. where it disappeared from the, from yep. the sighting. Like I say, he's travelling up to 4,000 miles per hour with fast light. And the difference this time was he's actually seen by other people. So okay. we saw from soldiers on the ground, and as the pilot travelling at 4,000 feet, he reported seeing the same bright light actually beneath his aircraft. So he saw it flying beneath him. Wow. So obviously they got these number of reports. So they actually got in contact with RAF at Lakenheath, which is 40 miles away. From Bentwaters to basically say we've tracked these objects and they're coming sort of towards you and again officers at RAF Lakenheath saw the same thing and they saw these bright objects so they're watching it in the sky and then they saw basically change direction very quickly okay. and then as they're moving away they got smaller until they just disappeared. That's crazy and isn't it funny how when people see these lights in the sky and whatnot they always perform these weird manoeuvres so yeah. they do change direction really quickly yeah because there was actually a meteor shower that night um, so people like looking to say these were meteors mm-hmm. it was uh, the Perseids I think it was quite a heavy yeah. uh, meteor laden night but these movements that they saw at, oh yeah Lakenheath these weren't movements that meteors make or that other space objects make they don't change direction they don't they sort of get smaller yeah, and I suppose there wasn't there's hardly any satellites up in the sky at that point either, like there is now. Yeah, not like that, isn't that? No, so, and satellites don't change direction pretty well. They can move out of orbit, but they don't change direction, really. Yeah, not like that, not at speed. No. no. Yeah, okay. These lights were, were travelling. Yeah, so the incident was actually part of the original Project Blue Book investigations that were carried out by the US Air Force in the 50s. And when the Condon Committee, when they, they were, the Condon Committee was put together to basically look at all the files that the Project Blue Book and other civil organisations had put together of UFO sightings and UFO reports. And the Condon Committee basically to examine these files and decide whether there's anything worth continuing to investigate it and if there's any threat to the US or wherever. And the Condon Committee found, and I quote, in conclusion, although 
Conventional or natural explanations certainly cannot be ruled out. The probability of such seems low in this case. And the probability that at least one genuine UFO was involved appears to be fairly high. And that's what the final report said to this UFO incident. That's mad. That's similar type wording to stuff that's coming out nowadays or recently about the UAPs. So yeah. that's big news. That's big. So that was the 1956 UFO incident at the Ben Waters base. We'll now jump forward a couple of decades to 1980. But again, we're still not talking about the famous December 1980 UFO incident. No, we're actually going to go to February 1980 for this one. And this is Lori Rayfelt's UFO sighting. She was an American airman stationed at RAF Bentwaters between 1978 and 1980. She was working with the Air Force Police with the 81st Security Police Quadrant. And she worked between both the bases, Bentwaters and Woodbridge. And it was in February 1980, like I said. She and her colleague Keith Duffield, they were on patrol about 3 o'clock in the morning. And they went to check these gate was locked. Just doing the rounds, making sure everywhere safe. Because they were responsible for doing the patrols, policing the actual staff on the site. And doing all the vehicle checks and stuff like this. Yep. So it was 3 o'clock in the morning there, around the east gate. And they saw what they thought were aircraft lights just approaching the airbase. Which is quite usual, they would have cargo deliveries and stuff and they started thinking, oh we'll have to get the customs forms ready for whatever's coming in. And so they waited by the east gate in the van, waiting for this aircraft to land. And all of a sudden it just stopped and this light was just hovering. She said it was like it had been caught on camera, it just suddenly stopped moving. About 100 yards away from the runway and a couple hundred feet in the air, so it's quite close. And the path it came in on was similar to what aircraft were coming, it's coming in from the North Sea. And they waited for the one-way lights to be turned on, and they just didn't get turned on. And then, like I say, the light just stopped and was just hovering. And then all of a sudden, it started moving, like up and down, left and right. Sort of like making a cross shape in the sky. So they just stood, both of them just stood watching it. And all of a sudden, it just like burst into three different pieces. And it flew across the runway at immense speed right in front of him, across the one way, and then just shut up and disappeared. So they both just sat in the truck, just like, what the hell is this? And they just sat watching the sky, just like, wait if it's come back. We didn't come back, it just disappeared. So she says to Keith, a colleague, like, call it in. And he's a bit hesitant, he's like, no, he's like, you call it in, you're the senior officer. So she was a bit hesitant to do it, because one, it's a UFO, and they don't want to be reporting these types of things. And also, Laurie, she wasn't the most well-liked um, airman on the base. She had a bit, people had a bit of a problem with her being quite outspoken. And she was like a young female, like, airman at the time. But she had to do a job, so she called the desk sergeant, told him what they just saw, and he told them to go to the control tower and see if they saw anything. So they drove to the air control tower, knocked on the door, and when the guy answered, the officer in the control tower, he said he looked like he'd just woken him up. Like his appearance was like he'd just woken up. So he opens the door, lets him into the control tower, She's like, did you just see these lights going across the runway? And he was like, no, I didn't see anything. Like, trying to cover up that he was asleep. Um, oh, okay, yeah. And he was like, could it have been afterburners from one of the British planes? From one of the nearby bases, there's quite a few around there. And she was like, no, I know what afterburners like, and it made no noise whatsoever. It's just completely silent. So, only them two saw it. It wasn't on, well, the... Radar operators in the control tower didn't see anything. Possibly asleep. Yeah. 
and that was it. That was nothing really came off it. She got a bit of teasing yeah. over the next few weeks. She became known as Lois or UFO and all that <laughs> sort of stuff on the base. Um, and then she actually left in mid-December 1980. So she left like two weeks before the famous incident. Wow. And she, she didn't know anything about it. She was, I think it was in the mid-90s. She was just like Googling Bentwaters and then all the UFO stuff came up. And she's like, oh, they come back. They must have come back. Yeah, so she didn't even hear anything about it until 15 years later. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, because I, um, I live near a base and I've seen planes come in and then shoot off with their afterburners and they are some loud, <clears throat> loud sounds. Yeah, if, if that was only a matter of 100 or so feet away, you'd definitely know about it. It's, uh, it's a shame that nothing was captured on Control Tower. Yeah, he was, he was asleep apparently. Yeah. Uh, which can you sort of not too unrealistic, it might. No, honestly, if you're not expecting any planes in, then yeah, you quite possibly would uh, rest your eyes for a little bit, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I mean, there is some missing time aspect to it as well, because she only realised sort of like, say, afterwards. Because mm. you know, she was at the gate doing the checks at like three in the morning. When they went to Control Tower, she said it was just becoming sunlight, like over the North Sea, over to the east. But that wouldn't have been, it shouldn't have been like that at three o'clock in the morning in the middle of winter. This is February. Yeah, so February. It won't start getting light until more like mid morning. I was going to say, yeah, you're looking seven, seven o'clock ish, aren't you? Yeah, but that's something she didn't realise until like years later that it shouldn't have been daylight. So there's possibly some aspect of missing time. Yeah. I I've never even heard of this incident either before now, so yeah, that's that's that is kind of a weird one as well. And like you say, they would be used to seeing things in the sky, normal stuff. You'd like to think they would know the difference between what they're seeing and what they know to be in the sky. So, yeah. like I say, she thought it's just an aircraft because the approach it was taking just looked just like like it take the usual approach that the planes do mm-hmm. and they were just waiting for the runway lights to turn on and they just never did and then they just stopped and then all of a sudden flew across the runway at speed obviously she could say because this is like it's coming to the base pretty much it's yeah encroached obviously in their airspace and that was it and nothing really happened from it and i suppose if, it, if there's no sort of record of it anywhere then it's it's unlikely that it would there'd be anything other than just their sort of account of what happened yeah, pretty much. Well, now, I just want to talk about the scientific and military developments that took place in the area around Mendelssohn Forest, both before and after the Second World War. Not all of these are public knowledge, and some are still shrouded in mystery. For most of the 20th century, Orphan Ness itself has actually been owned by the Ministry of Defence, or the War Department, as it used to be. And they took it over in 1913, and much of the nests were drained of water so they could build airfields. It was the Central Flying School. They had in what's called the Experimental Flying Section. And they tested aircrafts, machine guns, bombs, night sights. And they were just testing all this stuff in orphan nests. Obviously in the run-up to the First World War. It was also a prisoner of war camp during the First World War. And they had German and Chinese personnel uh, held there. And they used them to actually construct the flood defences around like, the East Coast. After the war, in the 1920s, 
It was just used as a fire in the bombing range by the aeroplane and armaments experimental establishment. So it's, again, it's just basically a military testing range since 1913. But then we head to 1935, the first ever purpose-built radar masts were built here. And that, these actually led to the development of the radars, which were crucial in the Battle of Britain, and ultimately the success of the Second World War. So it's possible that these that these radars that were developed at Orphan Ness helped us win the Second World War due to all the advances in technology they did. So do we know if um, those radars, has there been any confirmation that they've picked up any anything during sort of those te- early years of testing? No, I, I, I'm not meant to find anything. No. I think they're too busy concentrating on the on the Second World War, I think, at the time. Yeah. That's probably um, quite an important thing to, to focus on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but before that, they actually had been discussed whether they could actually use radio waves to shoot down enemy planes. Okay. Like a, sort of like a death ray. But that was that was quickly quashed, and nothing more came out of that. But it was discussed, definitely. Okay, because um, that's, that's, still, that's still a, a, an avenue. I know that they, they're trying to be able to shoot down planes with lasers and all that kind of stuff so it's probably still quite high up on their their list I expect yeah definitely a good uh, well I suppose it'd be good technology to mm. more like James Bond type of technology <laughs> but from after the second world war so now we're talking from 1953 to 1966 they were testing atomic weapons there so what they used it for was to mimic the environmental pressures that the weapons actually have when they're deployed. So they had these big underground pits where they would simulate these the rigors that the bomb would go through as it's being deployed. And they built the buildings that you can actually because the National Trust own it now. You can actually go into the like the little like pillarboxes. Okay. That yep. they used to view the atomic testing from. So you can actually like, go and visit and have a look at them. Sounds like a road trip. We can add it to the air, the Soviet <laughs> road trip. Uh, but in the late 60s to the early 70s, the United States moved in with the experimental and top secret Cobra Mist radar system that was stationed at Orphan Nest. Okay. This was an experimental, like I say, top secret. It was over the horizon radar, so they could see basically the whole of Europe and Eastern Europe on these radars. They originally wanted it in Turkey. Or take it like no, you're not having it here. So they came to Orphan Ness. Uh, but that the from when they launched it and they just had a lot of problems with it. There was just lots of like interference that they just couldn't explain. So it only lasted a couple of years before they binned it and just couldn't find out why they're having problems, so they just got rid of it. Okay. And then it remained military and like I say until nineteen ninety three when the MOD sold it to the National Trust and they've had it ever since. Cool. And you, you can go and walk around the Rendlesham Forest area as well, can't you? I think there's there is a trail and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's a UFO trail. It's actually uh, actually got like a model UFO of what they saw on the trail. Apparently, it's not where it was seen. Okay. It's in a different part of the forest. I mean, that's on the side. They got a UFO trail, but where they say UFO, where the like Jim Benison touched it. Yeah. It's actually in a different part of the forest. Okay. Well, I've actually I've not been, but that's definitely on the on the, on the bucket list for yep. 2021. Yeah, definitely. definitely. As we can see, there's a huge history of military 
work and secret experiments and secret projects that all have gone on literally around that bit of area in Suffolk. But I just want to quickly go back to Second World War because at the mouth of Orphan Nest is a little hamlet called Shingle Street and this place during the Second World War it had been evacuated of citizens. There were rumours of failed German invasions all up and down the east coast during the during the Second World War. Although the government actually released some documents in 1993, we weren't supposed to release it until I think it was either this year or next year. But they released them in 1993 because they had lots of pressure to release these documents. And none of these actually have details of any German failed invasions. But during the Second World War, these these rumours of failed invasions were quite common. So it helped boost the morale of the people and the soldiers. Thinking that all the Germans are coming but we're keeping them off, keeping them out basically. And it also helped build relations with America. So saying, they were hearing these rumours that we were fighting off the Germans. So that gave them more onus to come and help us. But it's one of these German invasions, these rumoured German invasions that I want to talk about. This is this took place in Shingle Street and that, that there's some strange events that happened that are still talked about today, some 70 years later, like we are on this podcast. Uh, so the story, this story comes from a guy whose father served in the Home Guard during the Second World War and it was in autumn of 1940 they were sent to Colchester Barracks in Essex then they were transferred from there to an unknown location and all the while they were driving to the location they were told not to look out the back of the truck because you can't know where you're going and as they've been driving for quite a long time and at one point this guy's dad he actually looked out the back of the truck and he saw like the sky was orange and he saw basically the sea on fire so he, he thought it was like a down tanker and the petrol was ablaze and that was in the ocean but during that time as well they were actually trying to use that as a weapon like to see if they could actually set the sea on fire so as a way of stopping like invading armies coming through so he he looked out the back and saw that the sea was on fire yeah the, the how big an area are we talking? Do we know? Or we don't know that, I suppose. Uh, I don't know how big, but he said like the sky was orange, like the sky was lit up by it. Jesus. And it looked like the sea on fire. So he, I, he, he thought it was like a tanker that yeah. like, obviously started going on fire or whatever. Um, so they get to the location, which was later found out to be Single Street. And the shore was just awash with burned bodies, all wearing full German uniform. As far as he could see, there was just bodies. These dead Germans just burnt basically and they had to guard these bodies until the regular army came and they took over and then they got sent back and they were told to never talk about where they went or what they saw <laughs> that's that's absolutely weird as hell well, I think, and like this this hamlet is like empty pretty much so no like not like there's a army defense there that had Obviously, been defended against the Germans. There was just there was no one in this village, and and loads just of dead Germans. Just loads of dead German bodies. And they waited for the army to come in and relieve them until they got sent back. And th- this story was apparently corroborated uh, some years later by the creator of the Secret Army Museum, that's at Parham Airfield, which isn't too far from Shingle Street. And he said that the Dutch resistance they filled up their hospitals with burnt German soldiers, and this was at the same time as this single, single street incident. So there's some corroboration there, but again, there's no evidence to 
prove any of this. It's only stories and rumours. Of course, there have been so many different rumours of disinformation, some propaganda. No one really knows if this is just different stories from different times mm-hmm. mixed up as we look back. But this, this, the guy whose father told the story, he didn't tell him to like 40 years later. Because he was told not to tell anybody, so he didn't for 40 years until he told his son like what had happened. So it's, <laughs> it's strange. But if it did happen, what happened? Because hmm. you, you could say kind of understand it if it was a, a busy area and there was something of value to the Germans for them to really be there. But if it was a quiet hamlet with nobody living there, why would they? Well, I suppose that would be a good landing point. But do they know how many, roughly how many bodies? Or just... No, I just said it's just a wash. All I could see was just these bodies of dead Germans and then German uh, obviously Nazi uniforms that's strange so if it is if it is true if this did happen this likely well those one of the only explanations is some weapon that they had developed possibly at Orphan Ness this is yep. actually at the mouth of Orphan Ness this, this hamlet and they were using it on the Germans to either defend or test that out or so I suppose it is possible that those all those dead bodies could have been captured Germans and they were just testing on them I suppose rather than the invasion yeah yeah it could have been wow that's just really weird but yeah interesting that it's um the location of all of this happening it's it's all centered around this this region and Mm -hmm. and like I said at the start of the podcast this is why I want to talk about what happened in the past that's when we get on to the alternative explanation for what happened in the 1980 Rendlesham incident. These all tie in with that and then it gives a bit of a better understanding of the history and yeah. what has happened there in the past could explain what happened there in 1980. Yeah, because I'm quite shocked at how much that we've been through on the podcast that I didn't know any of it. So to hear that there's so much... We could literally talk for days about the stuff. Mm. Obviously, we need to condense it and just briefly talk yeah. on each thing. But yeah, but it, it, uh, like have yeah, wild a wild man, um, his demon dog, all these military experiments, number of UFO sightings, number of UFO sightings on the same yeah, base by separate people, yeah, um, all different years. Yeah, it definitely sort of makes you think about what happened. Uh, the official story. Well, now we're actually talking about secret experiments, and in particular, experiments conducted on soldiers and other military members. There's been theories banded about for a few years, not least by Nick Redfern. He's, Nick Redfern's an author, he's written quite a few books, and he's a bit of a Marmite character. Some people like his stuff, some people think he's bonkers, basically, with some of his theories. Uh, and one of his theories, in one of his recent books, uh, the book's called The Rendlesham Conspiracy, and he lays forward the claim that what happened in December 1980 was the result of a secret experiment using holograms and mind-altering drugs. And that's what the whole three-night incident came down to, was these drugs and holograms being used on the soldiers, on the airmen. Well, it's certainly a theory, I suppose. <laughs> definitely, definitely theory, but it wouldn't be the first time. We all know about Port and Down. Yeah. The uh, secret research facility in Wiltshire, and since the 1950s, they've been carrying out experiments similar to this on 
serving soldiers and serving marines. Uh, there's one in the 1950s where they told soldiers that they were trying experiments to find a cure for the common cold. But what they were actually doing was trying to see if they could use LSD as a truth serum. So these soldiers volunteered to try and like do this testing for the common cold when actually they're being guinea pigs for this LSD. Well, for this LSD experiment. So they they were willing participants in a drug trial, but not the drug trial that they thought they were being. Yeah, and these these doses they're giving them, so they're giving them like LSD a couple times a week. Yeah. And see how they react to it, and basically, Wildly, could, I imagine. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, a lot of it was hallucinations. Um, create a lot of like quite anxiety creating effects. Yeah. Um, and some of them had flashbacks that years later, decades later, they're still having flashbacks to what they saw while they were on these hallucinatory drugs. And the MOD actually paid compensation some decades later. So they never admitted liability, but they did pay out to mm. so just, it says it all really. That does. That does. If that doesn't say I'm guilty, I don't know what. <laughs> yeah. Um, this continued throughout the 60s, uh, but the emphasis switched from the possibility of using it as a true serum to a means of actually incapacitating the enemy. Actually using it to, as a weapon, like in chemical warfare, basically. Yeah. And well. it's in 1964 when 17 Royal Marine Commandos were taken to the woods. Again, this is voluntarily, they were told they were going to be part of an experiment. Uh, and they were given doses of LSD while they were in the woods. And there's, there's a video you can see, it's like black and white video. We basically see these 17 Marines and they basically just lose control of their bodies and the mind. And there's one climbing the tree trying to feed the birds. You've got the troop commander just unable to control his laughing. Others are just walking around staggering and walking into trees and stuff, just giggling and laughing. So they couldn't do the job, basically, if they were given this LSD. So that's why the government were trying to see if they could use it as a weapon. Yeah. Spray the enemy with all this LSD and <laughs> stop it being able to function, basically. Incredible. Yeah. And these lasted for hours, these effects. So it's not too unrealistic to think that in the 1980s, in the middle of the Cold War, we got a big threat from Russia. Could they have still been using this as a possibility as a weapon? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they would try, try anything, um, especially something like that, that they know now that does work and will work for hours why not like the main point that Nick Redfern makes about this is that the the forest was full, filled with this gas of LSD mm -hmm. so when these soldiers when the airmen went to investigate these lights in the forest they were hit by this dose of LSD or other type of drug that's obviously causing to hallucinate see things in the forest that weren't there and led to all the strange things that happened over the next few nights and that the UFOs like that they saw were holograms. Which is again that's another thing that's been talked about quite a lot, is government has have has this hologram technology that they can use to project all sorts into the sky and make it look real. That's what the people when it comes to the five uh, G. Some people think that this five uh, G's can cause holograms, that it's gonna be a fake uh, well. alien invasion that's coming and that, that yeah, that comes back to this. This could have been a trial to see if they could, they could convince U.S. airmen that there's 
UFOs or craft in the sky. They could use that against the population itself. That's some big claim. That is some big claim. I'm not so sure, but who knows? Who knows? It's quite a dangerous experiment. Mm. Uh, obviously, these are active bases, active nuclear bases. We've obviously armed yeah. soldiers going into the woods. So with the ones in the past, they knew they were an experiment not going to be given. I'm assuming they wouldn't have had live ammo with them during these experiments, but these soldiers would have, these airmen would have had. Yeah, and I mean the the the, the tape recording from Charles Holt. He sounds to me extremely sort of in a heightened state of awareness, but he doesn't sound like he's on drugs or he actually yeah. sounds like they're they're having he's a, a focused like conversation. Yeah, yeah, because he talks into the the the, the voice recorder and he's explaining what they're seeing, and it do, it doesn't sound like I would thought somebody would sound like if they didn't really know what was going on I think there would be a bit more panic in his voice although he is quite panicky he's quite controlled um, yeah. so I don't know, I don't know. Uh, who knows with with what the government's prepared to try it's, uh, but yeah, it, I mean, uh, mm. that, that's a good point and it comes back to when he asks the question of why or why there because there's such a history of strange things going on in that area for years there's obviously the ufo science in the past at the base itself got all these strange paranormal things going on strange creatures and folklore and myths going back hundreds of years it's it would be a good place to do an experiment like that because it can be passed off as shit like that happens in that area mm -hmm. well if it was in i don't know somewhere that's quite a controlled base it's quite be quite random but when it's when you think about the history of that area it kind of think oh it's it's random it's there's all sorts going on there yeah that sort of muddle, muddles the, muddies the water a bit for if, if it is the government doing these tests experiments the water's already mudded yeah and the, all the stuff that we've covered off that's happened over the last sort of 800 years um it's definitely is a weird area so yeah, you could see why it wouldn't look out of place, all this weird stuff happening in that particular area. So when you when you put all the pieces together, like you've mentioned, it doesn't actually seem that weird that something like that has actually happened there. Yeah. Um, so it would be a good place as any to actually do something like that if it was going to be an experiment. But one other theory that's uh, put forward, a few people do like this theory, is that it was actually the SAS playing a prank on the US Airmen. Tell me more. Because <laughs> the, the SAS was said to have regularly tested US security by probing the perimeters of the Wood Bridge and Bentwaters just kind of test how good their security is. Because this is a... They had nuclear warheads stored at the base and obviously they needed to be making sure that this place is properly protected. What happened was in, in August 1980, this is just a few months before this event, an SAS troop parachuted into the complex. Okay. They didn't know that the guards at the base had actually upgraded the systems. So they obviously found out that they had parachuted into the base. And then they, were, they claimed that they were beaten up by the US airmen and like interrogated because they basically parachuted into the base. <laughs> uh, for 18 hours they apparently held 
before the British authorities like intervened and told them to to let them go. This theory is that they're getting them back for that. So they're playing this prank on him in the woods in the middle of the night over Christmas as a way of getting back at him for when they captured him, so to speak, a few months earlier on one of the, their testing experiments. Well, again, that's a, that's a good theory, but I still I still think it's all a bit... From going back to that, that voice recording from Charles Holt, that just sounds so genuine to me that he's had a genuine experience yeah. that he truly believes happened for something that he can't explain. And the way you can hear the guys in the background, you can hear them sort of like um, talking in the distance about what they're seeing. You'd think they'd spot a prank as well. I don't think it would be that elaborate. I don't yeah, know. over three nights as well, it'd be quite... Um... Yeah. Quite a mission for a lot. And I know the SS are good, but are they that good? I don't know. But it does, it, yeah, like you say, it's over three nights, and these are highly trained military personnel that have clearly seen something or multiple things over multiple nights. Yeah, and I think it's a good job we have that recording because um, yeah. I think that is without that recording, I think there'd be a lot less to actually. I guess that, that would have been able to... Have you got the memo which first leaked, which led yes. to the whole thing being out in the open anyway, which is 1983. Uh, but the recording just adds so much weight to something happened. Yeah, aside from having any video that we know of, that voice recording is almost... It's definite proof that something happened and they experienced something. Yeah, everything else is hearsay, pretty much. Yeah. Like the Jim Peniston... This, this, this like, is was a decade later when he mm-hmm. remembered these binary codes and stuff that he'd written down in the notebook. So it's years and years later, and it's all yeah. that's all hearsay. That's all this happened. Some people back people up. Some people say that didn't happen. Some people say this did happen. But what we do have is the recording, and that yeah. is proof enough that something happened. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Just something taking happened. out the time, which is obviously the best time to have any mm-hmm. evidence is from yeah. when it happened. Yeah whilst it was happening that's in that's the one one sort of piece of evidence that i've seen on loads of ufo stuff that is so compelling that when you listen to it you you get a feeling of being there yeah um not that i would want to based on what they cut <laughs> but i don't know if it would be an hallucination or or something that somebody else has I've done as a prank it just seems like when you when you listen to that voice recording that is it's just so compelling that they've experienced something that they've never seen before but yeah definitely I don't know so that about wraps up the last 800 years of strange and unusual events that have taken place in the Rendlesham area I hope you've enjoyed our alternative look at the events leading up to the three night occurrence in 1980 thank you for listening to this episode and hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and hope you have a happy new year whatever that may bring for you pursuit of the paranormal with ash and greg